Southern Skies. Online Media. folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 68 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher and joining me as always is Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey mate, how you going? I'm not too bad mate, except I'm dying here of leg cramps. It's been rather embarrassing trying to kick this off. Yeah, I think this is the tiger guys who are trying to put their hex on you because they, they, they do think that you're the reason why they're being taken off, you know, banned from <laughs> flying in Australia mate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like I said on my Facebook page the other day, contrary to popular opinion, I am not responsible for Tiger being grounded. Although I Yeah. But I, I will take credit for it. <laughs> yeah, it was entirely their own doing, right? <laughs> yeah, we might talk about that a bit later in the show, Grant. But uh, before we do that, a bit of housekeeping just to kick things off while we're making big announcements like oh. we did last week. Do I have to do the vacuuming again? <laughs> Could have kept the studio clean, mate. Oh, okay. Well, uh, joining us on the line from the Lifestyle Pod Network is James Williams. Hi, James. G'day, Steve. G'day, Grant. How are you going? Hey, not bad, mate. How are you? I, I'm doing really well. Uh, it's good to be here in winter and talking to you guys. Well, You're in winter in Sydney, yeah, being well, such a Pacific point of view. <laughs> the only freezing point in Sydney tonight. Absolutely. Same down here in Melbourne, as a matter of fact. But that's always the case if you ask a Sydney cider. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. Well, uh, folks, you've been hearing a lot of, probably for the last six or seven months, we've been running promos for the Lifestyle Pod Network, and uh, we're doing that as a, a bit of a service to, uh, you know, as a part of our uh, contribution to, uh, well, particularly the Australian uh, podcasting community, uh, because we believe in community here at PCDU in many ways, and uh, podcasting is certainly that, if nothing else. So, you know, James, uh, we thought what we might do is uh, finally formalise this a little bit and actually join the network. Yeah, look, it's, it's really great to have you guys. You know, I've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under probably, you know, on and off, over the last uh, year or so, and and we've had conversations both with you, Steve. I've I've met you and, and Grant as well, and uh, it seems like a good match. And uh, we're really proud to uh, to be associated with you guys, and we're very pleased with you know what what you bring to the the network in terms of uh, your credibility and the way that you work within your particular niche and and the way that you're working with your community. We think it's fantastic. Yeah, well, Thanks, um, and, and I think uh, like we said before, James, we think it's a bit of a mutual admiration society here because uh, <laughs> you and I have talked a lot about podcasting in general, and um, I mean you guys are, are doing a lot of things that you know I would <laughs> I've thought about doing uh, independently before I came across your network, but uh, you know. You and I are on the same page about a lot of those issues. And I think outside of aviation, uh, you know, this gives me an opportunity to sort of contribute to the sum of knowledge about podcasting, particularly in our part of the world. And, um, you know, some of the things I'd like to be able to do is to help other podcasters to, uh, you know, to improve their shows if, they, if they'd like the benefit of, of whatever we might have learned here along the journey. So uh, I think this is a real opportunity to do that as, uh, you know, as well as to distribute our show a bit more widely, which is always a good thing. Yeah, look, I couldn't agree with you more. I think um, the more we've spoken, the more I've seen that alignment as well. And 
And um, the Lifestyle Pod Network is, as you mentioned, um, very much an Australian network. It's an Australian global podcast network, so it's not exclusively Australian. But we do heavily promote two things. That is great content and the other one is is building community around podcasts. And that's something that you guys do well. And we're looking forward to, you know, to what you can share with us. And and uh, I think, you know, in terms of uh, helping spread the word about PCDU, um, our uh, alliances with syndication partners like iTunes in particular is a great way of being able to get the shows spread out further, you know, through our, our feature provider pages and our connections with uh, with Apple. So, you know, I think it's a it's a great relationship. I'm looking forward to uh, where we can take it. And one of the things that really stuck out to me just talking about that uh, Apple feature provider is that uh, recently, mate, uh, I bought a, an Apple TV device and uh, got bagged a little bit from from some people about it. But, <coughs> yeah, well, but I you tell know, you what, it wasn't um, just me. It was an ex Apple uh, person as well. <laughs> yeah, well, that's true. Well, actually, I think it's a fantastic device but uh, uh, I noticed in going through the podcast list there that you get networks and some of the big ones like you know Rev3 and Twitter and all those but uh, included in that list is the Lifestyle Pod Network so I mean that's, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah that was a bit of a journey for us. Um, it was certainly something in 2008 that we set as a goal and uh, came about late last year. It was like a like a nice Christmas present. I had a, a, a call from Apple and they said uh, or an email actually and they said we'd like to talk to you and I go oh here it is. You don't hear anything from Apple unless they want to talk to you about something good. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, I spoke to a guy over there called Ben. He's actually based in London and he's the account manager for Australia and New Zealand. And he said, look, this call's overdue. We probably should have called you about six months ago, but uh, we'd like to understand where the network's going. So I told him a little bit about our aspirations and how we wanted to grow the network to about 80 shows this year and uh, how we were moving to a new platform, which are all activities that we've been doing this year. And, uh, and he was impressed and he said, look, um, we really think that you should have a featured provider page and we should give you some tools so that that you can manage your own, you know, you, you manage yourselves in the Apple store. So we've got access to some great tools that allow us to promote podcasts and, and display them in a different way. And, and that would have been some of the stuff that you saw up there. So it's, it's pretty exciting for us and it's nice to be able to reach those those types of goals. Yeah, it's exciting for us. I mean, as we record this, we're about a week away from our two-year anniversary at uh, Playing Crazy Down Under. Congratulations. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, and <laughs> Thanks, it's, been, it's been a real journey of uh, along the way, you know, learning and re-engaging with the aviation uh, community itself has been amazing in itself. And uh, um, that's been one side of it, but, you know, for me uh, and for Grant too, I mean, learning the podcast side of it has, has been a, a real journey as well. So I'm really excited about this and, and, you know, we've had our great news about getting across to Oshkosh. I mean, that's a, you know, it's been a, it's been a big month for us. And so, uh, we, you know, I think this just rounds it out really nicely for us to, uh, to come onto the network and uh, yeah, we're really looking forward to it. So uh, thanks for having us. Oh, look, it's an absolute pleasure. And guys, you're going to have so much fun at Oshkosh. I can, I can tell already you guys are <laughs> buzzing every time I talk to you about it. And, uh, you know, I look forward to to uh, talking to you guys some more on some of our other shows on the network and and uh, you know writing some stories about some of the great stuff that you're doing because I know behind the scenes you guys are just so passionate about aviation and you really get in there and uh, you know boots and all and you get the stories and you you're on video and you're talking to the, the companies and the providers and the pilots and anyone you can think of you know and I think that makes for really entertaining podcasts and uh, that's the reason why you know you're you're doing so well and uh, I'd like to pick your brains a little bit about some of that behind the scenes stuff as well so um congratulations guys you guys are doing so well and it's a pleasure to have you as part of the network and uh have fun at oshkosh and i look forward to talking to you again soon on on some of our other shows on the lifestyle pod network well thanks very much mate and we we appreciate you coming on it's actually quite late at night as it always is when we record our shows (laughs) so we've just grabbed (laughs) you to chat about this mate but uh yeah we'll be talking to you soon and uh as you did for our avalon podcast you're going to do a couple of 
promos for us uh, for our Oshkosh shows. So uh, we'll be hearing James's voice a lot more often on Playing Crazy Down Under, and you'll probably be hearing our voices a lot more on, you know, shows like Two Schooners and Podcasters <laughs> Emporium, places like that. <laughs> yeah, for some strange reason, we it just seemed to fit in really well on Two Schooners. That would just flowed, you know. <laughs> well, Victorian translation, two pots. Yeah, two well. Pots. You know, beer, pint, biggest, largest, coldest. Thank you. Doesn't That works in any language. Okay, yeah, well, exactly. Uh, we're going to move on with the show here, James. Thanks very much for joining us, mate, and we'll talk to you very soon. Thanks for having me as a part of Playing Crazy Down Under, and welcome to the network again, guys. Thanks, mate. Yep, now on with the episode, Grant. Now, uh, Monica Petrello is someone that, uh, if you listen to a lot of aviation podcasts, you'll certainly be familiar with. She's the producer of an independent film called Flyabout, which is basically a documentary of an around Australia safari that she did uh, by air about 10 years ago now. And uh, Monica's really proactive promoting her films and uh, you know it's, uh, we were glad that uh, we were able to get her on our podcast so that she can talk about uh, flying around Australia to some Australians. So we've got her on the line now from California. Hi there Monica. Hi Steve. Welcome. Hi Grant. Hey how's it going? Good good great. Well welcome to the show and uh, one of the other participants uh, in that flight was Elliot Schiffman and he joins us on the line also from Florida. Hi there Elliot. Uh, greetings to both of you. I'm doing well and looking forward to this exchange. Okay, Monica, now uh, it was way back in 1998 and um, the movie is uh, is doing well. You've, you've sort of been out promoting it uh, quite heavily the last 12 months or so. Um, before we start talking about the flying aspects of it, perhaps tell us uh, how long it took to produce the movie. And um, of course, I'm curious, being a podcast producer, <laughs> how much post-production went into it? Well, um so we, we flew around Australia in four weeks and I basically returned with 25 hours of video footage and very little idea of how to make a documentary film. <laughs> <laughs> I was lucky to find a friend who would allow me to use his slightly antiquated editing system and edit in the back of a warehouse in Glendale. Um, I taught myself how to edit and over the course of seven long years put together the film. There's two main reasons why it took so long. One is because soon after my trip around Australia, I got married and I had two kids. And obviously that kind of takes a lot of your time. But the other reason is that I decided to make the movie all by myself. I, I wrote it, I edited it, I directed it, and I am now out promoting it all by myself. And one of the reasons for that is it's a very, very personal film. And uh, whenever somebody said to me, why don't you just hire an editor? You'll be done much faster. I... I thought about it and I, I just couldn't do it because it, it wouldn't make sense for it. Nobody could tell the story besides myself and it didn't make any sense for me to, to have somebody else, you know, put, put the story together. So it took a long time, but in the film business, they say you can make a movie fast, cheap and well. Pick any two. Yeah, it's like IT. Well, I guess there's, I guess there's something inherently satisfying about, uh, you know, putting in all the work and seeing the finished product uh, come to life. It's, uh, oh, I know doing this podcast, I mean, we, we put a lot of hours into post-production here, but it's, uh, and it can be a bit of a drag at times, but it's uh, it's really satisfying when you hear the finished product come out, and uh, particularly if you get good reviews for it, which, you know, happens sometimes with us. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. And, and you know, over the seven years, I, I know that many of my friends and family behind my back rolled their eyes and said no <laughs> what yeah. are you doing like who's ever going to want to watch your home video and I, I at some point one of the guys actually point blank asked me like what's your goal with this are you are you actually trying to get on tv or get this on a in, a in a film festival and so I had at some point I had to decide for myself what is my goal and I think frankly in an effort to protect myself from total failure I decided that my goal was somewhat of a range with the very bare minimum being that I will finish the film. 
And as long as I finish it, put it on DVD, put it in my shelf, have it for my kids to see one day and myself able to say, hey, I made a movie, I would consider myself a success. And I thought anything beyond that is a bonus. And so, so sort of a cathartic release there. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, I really was quite happy when the film got accepted into the South by Southwest Film Festival. And, and then somebody said to me like, well, what about the pilot community? Don't you think they would like your film? And once I discovered that huge subculture and community, I, I was really quite flabbergasted. And, um, and it's been a very uh, rewarding experience ever since then. I should put this question out to both of you. Uh, of course, you know, Grant and I have both lived in the States and we, we sort of uh, pick up on the idea that Australia is a popular place. But I guess uh, perhaps for you first, Elliot, uh, what was the attraction? What was the, how did the idea come about to uh, head across here to Australia and uh, do the, uh, the, the safari? Oh, I always uh, had great images of Australia. It was uh, something uh, distant, exciting, uh, new vistas, new experiences. Just, you know, if you have an adventurous personality, this is something to do. And what about you, Monica? You live in the States, but uh, it says here in your bio, of course, that you were born in Munich in uh, in Germany, and uh, you've been living in the States uh, since 1991. So uh, I guess travel is something that's uh, not so uncommon for you. Yeah, that's true. I, I, I've been fortunate to travel quite a bit in my life. I, I've been to Namibia and uh, Vietnam and Japan and, and all over Europe. I've done a lot of my travels with my dad, and we, frankly, ever since I was a kid, I said, I would love to go to Australia. Why? It's it's really because to me, Australia always in my head was really wild and really earthy and really, I don't know, it just had a real draw to it. And however, when I was a kid, my dad would always say to me, you know, Australia only makes sense if you have six months time or a way to cover great distances because yeah. with two weeks time or three weeks time, even all you're going to see is the East Coast. And, and, and if you have seen that, you haven't really seen the quote real Australia. And so no, it true. wasn't, yeah, it wasn't really until both me and my dad had pilot license that we revisited that. I was like, wait a minute, now we could cover those great distances. Maybe now we should think about going to Australia. And then we found, we came across this ad for Guana Air Safaris and just, you know, well, that's it. That's what we got to do. And Monica, you've actually been flying longer than your father at the time of this, hadn't you? I think your father had not long done his student license or is that correct? Yes, that's correct. I had about 140 hours of flying experience, which most of you that fly. I know that that's really nothing. However, my dad had gotten his pilot's license a year after me, really more, you know, I guess it's fair to say as a, uh, inspired by me. And when, when I had told him I'm getting a pilot's license, he reacted <laughs> by saying he was quite envious and turned out that it had always been his dream to fly in life. And when I asked him, well, why didn't you do it? He said, well, you know, in Germany, we don't really have general aviation. And frankly, that's a hobby reserved for the very rich because it's quite expensive to fly in Germany. And uh, But then when he learned that his 24-year-old daughter sort of just did it and got a license in California, he couldn't resist the temptation to do the same. So <laughs> he came He came to LA uh, a year later with six weeks vacation from, from his work and got his own pilot's license when he was 58, which is, I, I really admire him for that. Uh, but what that, when Flyabout starts, the situation we were faced with was really a, a very inexperienced pilot and an even more inexperienced pilot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and, and, and your poor father having to try and fly and land from the right-hand seat. It's very awkward, isn't it? It's quite awkward. And in fact, I, I just had a, a showing of the film at Kent State University and people were asking me in the Q&A afterwards, you know, if you, if you did it all over, what would you do differently? And I've had 12 years to think about it. And I can tell you there's really only one thing that I can 
envisioned that I would do differently. And that is, I guess I would get some training flying in the right seat because there was, it was a no win situation. You know, I was flying left seat. I, I had never flown right seat and, and I couldn't really afford to fly right seat and find out that I couldn't land a plane that way because he wasn't quite that confident in, in, in landing period. And, and, and so, yeah, it was a tricky situation. I kind of had, yeah. had to make him sit in the right seat, but that made it that much harder for him to practice his landings and to, and to do landings. Well, before we get on to your initial flight there, Elliot, uh, perhaps you could tell us a bit about your flying, uh, your flying experience. Well, I started flying um, oh, about 1983. Actually, I was a uh, flight surgeon in the Air Force. I have been drafted out of my residency and quickly called the Armed Forces and said I want the Air Force and then called the Air Force and said I want to be a flight surgeon. And uh, I learned very quickly that if I flew in one of the fighters with somebody who hadn't flown for a month, I could tell. And so it, it dawned on me very quickly that if I was going to take up flying, I needed a enough time to stay proficient and fly frequently. So I waited until about 1983 when my kids were gone from the house. I had a couple partners in my uh, practice and I could spend a lot of time flying. So by the time I made this trip, I had thousands of hours of flying time and I was just the opposite of Monica who had just 140 hours. But that's that's pretty cool that you can you know do these safaris with people with such diverse flying backgrounds from the very new pilot to the very experienced one. Well, the thing that really made our group so wonderful was that all of us came from totally different backgrounds, totally different experiences, and we had such great mutual respect and admiration for each other on this trip that we truly bonded together as a group. And when you came across as a group, I mean, did you come across to Australia as a group uh, or did you all sort of make your own way over here and assemble up there in Queensland to uh, kick it off? No, no we, we just we we met right there. Uh, in fact, I you know we we had never we had read each other's names. That that's about it. Uh, but uh, yeah, we met and we're driven right out to the airport and said like, okay, here's your plane. Let me see if you can fly. <laughs> um, in the movie, I I I doc, I uh, comment on that and say like they were basically strangers to us and. Like Elliot said, it was nothing but a miracle and, and total serendipity that we all happened to, to jive so well. And I think that's that's really, in my opinion, that's really because we all have a similar take on life, not just a similar love for flying, but we really share a, a certain attitude towards life. Now, you guys came over here to Australia, as it turns out, at a time of um, quite some change in Australia's uh, flight rules and procedures and our air traffic management system. Now, I did most of my flight training in the United States, as most of our listeners would be aware of. When I came back here in 1991, the process to have uh, my American licenses recognised here was quite arduous. Uh, now, in 1998, things had probably began to change a little bit in that regard. So uh, how did the both of you find getting your US pilot certificates recognised here? It was not a problem at all. We uh, sent copies of our logbooks, uh, essentially the last several pages of our logbooks that showed our total hours and, and a copy of our pilot certificate, some other personal data, and Mal was able to arrange our pilot licenses uh, by the time we got there. It was very simple then, and it was before 9-11 and before all the new regulations were put into effect. Those regulations that eventually wound up having Mal closed down Goanna. Uh, yes, exactly. Sadly. Yeah, he um, he went on record saying in 2005, oh, 2006 January, I think it was, he uh, or the end of 2005, he um, he had to shut down due to the what he was seeing as the onerous fees and costs that were going in because of making it hard for pilots to come into the country. Yeah, the other thing right. that 
the, that, that brought us together as a group, I think, was our similar desires uh, of the type of flying that this trip in, uh, entailed. You know, if you come to the States, you can have a trip going to New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or you can go to Niagara Falls, um, uh, the national parks, uh, Muir Woods, Yosemite. And this trip around Australia was the latter. It was not to the cities of Australia. It was to the outback, to the uh, remote regions, uh, yeah. to the wildlife. And, you know, we all had this similar desire to uh, do this type of trip. And that uh, probably brought people of similar personalities together. Did you, um, the, and another interesting thing that a lot of American pilots were probably not aware of when they come over here is the, the lack of radar coverage of the bulk of our continent. Uh, I think uh, most of the time, even if in the States you're not flying in controlled airspace, you've at least got radar coverage. But uh, did you find that interesting or did it give you a sense of freedom that you could you could pretty much, you know, as long as you stayed outside controlled airspace, do pretty much what you want? Oh, are you the kidding me? Of- that was the best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, remember, I remember leaving Burktown and heading northwest towards... I think Gov was maybe our next uh, stop in the Northern Territory. And I had just lost the use of my regulator. So Mal had suggested, why don't you just turn off your radios? And I thought he was insane at first. I was like, what do you mean I can't fly without radios? He's like, well, there's nobody really to talk to anyways. And uh, at first I was, I have to admit, coming from L.A., which is one of the busiest airspaces in the world, I was really terrified. I thought I couldn't, how could, how could that be that there's nobody out there monitoring me or somebody I have to report to? And then bit by bit, I, I sort of let go and started to embrace the idea. And by the time we were halfway around the continent, I was totally in love with it and dreaded the idea of ever having to talk to an air traffic controller again. It was, I mean, we had the same, we had a frequency that all five of our airplanes were on we so we could talk to each other and we had a gps so we there was several times we would say like hey elliot i'm at 28.2 miles past you know burlula uh at 6,000 feet i think i see some emus at two o'clock and then he would go like oh yeah i think i see them too let's go down there and we would just fly wherever we wanted to and it was to me it was really the ultimate freedom and to me it was the kind of flying that I really had always dreamt of, and to this day, I'm not sure if it exists in America. In the States, if I'm flying locally, I usually uh, don't necessarily talk to anyone. But if I'm going anywhere across country, I'm always in radar flight, uh, flight following, always talking to somebody. On this trip, it was absolutely magnificent. Most of the flying was at 500 feet with the windows open. We all had a common origin and a common destination, but we ne- didn't necessarily follow the same track. So if I would see camels somewhere or um, dugong somewhere, we would pass the information on to each other. And somebody might go from where he was to where I was and back and forth. And we would, you know, periodically run into each other and see each other in the air and fly alongside each other. But we were all also independent to go wherever we wanted as long as we got to the same area about the same time to refuel our planes and uh, continue with the sightseeing. It was a great trip. Were you running with a Sarwatch or, uh, you know, did you have a sort of a flight plan file uh, as a backup? No, uh, we all had the same GPS in our airplanes and the essential route was pre-planned for us, but we were all allowed to deviate as much as we wanted to from the route. So it was a lot of freedom of flight, but it was all arranged. Yeah, I guess it's important to add that, you know, the the morning's departure point was set and we all would arrive at the same destination airport. We 
I think Elliot means like we were deviating from the course along that way, but we would always have the same destination airport. Yeah, the same end goal and all that, especially when you're in the outback and over the top end and so on. But you you also seem to have a fair bit of freedom when you were going as you're getting closer to Perth and then from Perth coming back across to the east coast over the, the Great Australian Bight down south where you saw the whales and so on, yeah? Right, right. Yeah, you guys, you, you were flying, uh, Monica, I think you were flying a Cessna 172, but there was also some, uh, was there some Piper Warriors or Cherokees in there as well? Um, yeah, we were, the us, the participants were all flying Cessna 172s, but Mal was flying, what was that, Elliot, a Warrior? Uh, he was flying so he, an Archer, I believe. Yeah, it was an Archer. It was definitely retractable. Yes, yes it was yes. an Archer. And he was the, you know, the um, one who planned the trips. And if we had maintenance problems or anything along the way, he was, you know, uh, there with the oil and everything uh, would help us with refueling. Yeah, but he essentially made all the touring arrangements, all the hotel arrangements. Uh, that was his airplane that he flew. We all had Cessna 172s. They were all different. Uh, one had a 180 horsepower. Some had 150 horsepower. Some were 28 volts. Some were 12 volt. But we basically all had Cessna 172s, which was a perfect airplane for this type of a trip. And just as an aside, Monica, I noticed that your film company is called Mighty IT Films. Uh, the, is there any significance in the the IT bit? <laughs> Did you figure it out, Steve? Yeah, I figured it out. I just thought the listeners uh, mightn't have picked up on it. Yes. Um, if you take a close look uh, on the movie, if you take a close look at my airplane, the uh, N number was, or I guess the VH number, it was VH. ITY was my my registration number and so when we early on as we started taking off we decided to name all of our airplanes so my plane was called the Mighty IT and Elliot's plane had the number DMQ so he was damn quick and then <laughs> lucky it wasn't PDQ <laughs> yeah we had SQ Sputnik and so forth so they all had their own each airplane had their names that's cool. That that always makes for a lot of fun when you when you personalize and, and just go around. So it sounds like for a bunch of for, well, put it bluntly, a bunch of foreigners, this was one of the best ways to see Australia. Absolutely. And you know what? Not even foreigners. I mean, we ran into Australians who we told about where we had come from and where we were going, and they said they hadn't seen anywhere near that much of Australia as we had. I, I think for anybody, it's a fantastic way to see Australia and yep. a very unique way. And you can see Australia from a car or you can see it from 40,000 feet up in the air, but to see it from 2,000 feet up in the air, it's a very, very unique experience. And those colors and shapes have been forever imprinted in my heart and will never go away yeah my um, my partner was she was commenting um, when we watched the movie about uh, you know she was saying oh wow there's parts of Australia I still haven't been to yet and she's done a bit of traveling <laughs> with her family when she was younger mostly in a four-wheel drive but uh, yeah so she's looking at me going so are we gonna do that in balloon or what <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm getting my balloon license at the moment. I've uh, one of these days I'll get around to getting back to the fixed wing. But uh, yeah, we, when you when you fly with balloons, you quite often, especially if you're taking with a commercial operation, you're taking a special shape around and various things like that. There's been a, uh, some of the guys took some balloons up the top end and were doing uh, dragging the basket through the through the river. And then when they watched the video <laughs> from the helicopter later, they were like, "Oh look, they weren't logs." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oops. Sounds like doing those safaris is an incredible way to see around the top end, but also, you know, you're getting to see some cultural experience, you know, have some cultural experiences, some of which it sounds like they were kind of foist upon you uh, when you were stuck in various out-of-the-way places by the weather, like the four days in, um, was that Proserpine? Proserpine. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My brother learned learned how to play the didgeridoo that weekend. Yeah, I was going to ask, is he still playing? He is still playing, and not only that, I... 
I'm, I'm, I'd be happy to share some of the post-mortem stories with you. Uh, my brother is still playing the didgeridoo. He also took up skydiving, which cool. you can see the, the early, the early uh, you know, seeds for that in the movie as he's with the bungee jumping. And one of my favorite stories that I like to share with people is that as I, I tried to contact Taffy, who lived at Mount Hart Station in the Kimberleys, yeah. that guy who lived in the middle of nowhere by himself, I had to contact him to get a re- him to sign a release form to appear in my movie. And I'm very happy to tell you that his wife responded to my email. <laughs> yeah, because he, he was the solo bushman, so to speak. He had people come out occasionally to work, but mostly it was just him and the dingoes, wasn't it? It was. And he, when I had asked him in the interview, I said, you know, do you, don't you get lonely? He's like, yeah, but who could you ever ask to live out in a place like this with you because what would they do you know so i was extremely happy to see that he had in fact found somebody to share his life with him and then i'm also happy to tell you that it's been 12 years and just last week believe it or not we had eight of the 11 participants in this tour reunite cool. at my house you know, oh, wow. 12 years later. So we had Elliot and, and his wife Maxine flew Elliot's Bonanza out from Florida. Freddie and Pat came from Germany and made like a California vacation out of it. My dad was here from Germany and Jerry and Melba came up from San Diego. That's so cool. It, it really was. And, and the best thing was it was like no time had passed. It was really amazing. Yeah. That is cool. Have you have you been in, ch- in touch with Mel Mel Shipton, the uh, organizer of Goanna Tours? Uh, not too much. He, I, I've tried to reach him via email once or twice. He did respond to me last week and said that he was he had um, moved his operations. Forget what do you remember what that's called, Elliot? To some town where he did, had very patchy internet service, which is why. Yeah, he, I don't remember the name of the town. I think he's somewhere in Queensland at the moment. It's somewhere in that area, yeah, mountains yeah. or something. But he said he had very patchy internet access there, so he uh, was sorry not to be able to join us. Okay, mind you, saying that uh, he's in he's in Queensland somewhere is sort of like saying he's in about one third of the United States, or you know, a quarter <laughs> of, the, of the United States. It's a pretty big state. Um, goes goes for a couple. His, of his, his, he's now tied up with old airplanes. He's a romantic, and I think he uh, bought a gypsy moth. Yeah. From what I've been able to see, he's in with the tigers, the gypsies, and all that kind of stuff so yeah and I've, I've heard reference to his name in relation to uh you know the old uh, 1930s aircraft and so on but he was such a great guy i have to tell you like i would not have wanted to have his responsibility and this burden of a tour when we were stuck in behind on day three maybe and we were stuck for day after day after day. At some point, we had to cancel going to Cairns because we weren't going to make it. Then we got to the point where he said, like, well, if we're not leaving tomorrow, we might not make it around the whole continent anymore. It was some serious pressure. And we eventually, as you saw in the movie, made it out through this tiny gap between the clouds and the mountains. And we just, just made it out. And that was a that was a lot of responsibility. So a lot of stress where, there. Where did, the, um, yeah. where did the trip actually, what town did it actually kick off from? Uh, Brisbane. Oh, Red was it Brisbane? Airport. Archerfield? Redcliffe. Oh, Redcliffe. Okay. Yep. Yes. And uh, now you headed around in a, uh, I guess, a counterclockwise direction around Australia. How did you find sort of heading across? I mean, the geography changes a lot, doesn't it? From uh, once you get away from the coast and particularly once you get uh, further and further inland, it becomes uh, quite a different landscape as you go around. The geography changed dramatically every day. Um, you, we, as we headed north, of course, we're heading to the um, Barrier Reef section and it's coastal. 
then we head across the mountains into the mining area around uh, Charter Towers. Um, from there, you head up north uh, into um, what is the Northern Territory, and we flew along the most pristine, beautiful beaches that you say, why aren't there great resort hotels there? And then you realize, yeah, there's alligators and crocodiles and sharks and, uh, and the place and the place floods to four feet deep <laughs> during the rainy season. But, it, you know, the time of year that we went, it was absolutely gorgeous. And we go up into the tropical key to the Northern Territory and keep circling around. And once we start past Perth uh, or get to Broome and, and Perth, um, all of a sudden the weather starts getting colder. And by the time we get down to the uh, southern border, it's chilly. So in that one Fish. month, we experienced essentially a fair range of temperature and climate. What time of year was it that you were doing this trip? September. September. Well, you know, the weather, um, you know, we sort of, that time of year, and I, I know down in the part of uh, Australia where Grant and I live down in Melbourne, uh, it's, it's really quite windy usually around September. It's, it's quite, if we, you know, we're sort of in between seasons, if you like, and uh, I assume for um, other parts of the country, it's probably pretty similar. If you remember the Titanic when uh, the actor is standing on the bow of the boat, uh, the actor and actress with their arms out against the wind, um, we were exactly like that on the southern coast uh, on a pier it's a uh, with the with the <laughs> winds blowing yeah. 30 knots. Yeah, so I saw that on the video. It looked like, you, yeah, I, I used to do that when I was a kid growing up in New Zealand in Wellington. Uh, we actually used to wear our jackets and uh, you'd try and hook your jacket and around your belt or something and jump off a hill into the wind and float. <laughs> sort of almost get away with it in some of the windy days there, but it uh, looked like you were trying it at Seduna, yeah. So you went through uh, Seduna, which uh, for listeners who are not sure, that's actually down on the, uh, the south coast of uh, South Australia. Um, you went through Adelaide, I think, didn't you? Uh, we did not go through Adelaide, no. But I think there was a big soccer game going on when we were in Seduna because everybody was talking about Adelaide. Is that possible? Is there a big soccer team there? Oh, well, uh, that might have been, let's see, 98. That was the rest of Australia was in the AFL by that stage, weren't they, Steve? It's, uh, yeah. It used to be known as the Victorian Football League. Now it's the Australian Football League because uh, Adelaide and Sydney and Perth and now Brisbane and everyone are all joining in playing what's known as Aussie rules. So when they're talking about footy and all that, it's generally not soccer or, or rugby or anything. It's, it's the mad Aussie rules. We were also trying to stay away from the cities and yeah. go into the sightseeing areas. And instead of Adelaide, we went into areas where they were doing opal mining and uh, things like that. Yeah. Like Coobapedi and Coobapedi. places like that? Right. Places Which, uh, like that. Yeah, we didn't go to Coobapedi, but places like that. We went to uh, Port Headland. We went to uh, one of my favorite places that ended up not in the movie, but I loved that part, um, was Wassa. Have you heard of Wassa? WASA stands for the West Australian South Australian border. Oh, okay. Oh, right. <laughs> and it's the the quote town consists of a truck stop, a restaurant, and a motel. That's it. Hey, that's a metropolis. That's an outback <laughs> yes. metropolis. Usually, it's one damn building, and that's the the um, fuel, the food, the booze, and the post office, and this and the store and everything. Yeah, yeah. that's one, what, one of our... it was. It was. This was this was right situated right on the border between West Australia and South Australia. But you know, if you if you wandered away something like a hundred feet in either direction, you'd be in the total desert. And one of my favorite things about this place was that when we arrived there, they told us we had to adjust our clocks 
45 minutes because, yep. because it's right between the hour and a half difference and they're so smack in the middle that they decided to go with a 45 minute time change <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there's, there's some sometimes there's sanity in the country but we're not always sure where it is <laughs> one of our favorite stops on the southern side was also Arakula. just a Arakula, marvelous yeah. place yeah oh Arakula. yeah Arakula. Oh, don't, don't worry, I've, I've lived here for uh, many, many years and I still have fun with the uh, pronunciation of various places. Steve loves to get me to say a few place names around here in Australia because I always screw it up. Yeah, did you? I, I just asked, you didn't happen to stop through Tokemul, did you? Thank you. <laughs> it gets me every time. Tokemul is uh, where we used to do a lot of training of our B-24 Liberator pilots and, and um, heavy transport pilots during World War II. It's it's New South Wales, Victorian border area, and it looks like Tokemul. <laughs> but around here we pronounce it Tokemul. Yeah, well, I'm just picking on Grant. But uh, one of the things I was going to ask you guys is I noticed from the uh, from the route map that you, um, you didn't actually spend too much time time in our fair state here in Victoria. No, we didn't. Uh, we cut across that area. I, yeah. I think it was a matter of time. <laughs> Not a matter of taste, more time. Okay, we'll let that one slide. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you, I guess if you had to pick your, you had to pick and choose and the northwest of the country, I guess, was more oh, look, you're gonna, Yeah, you're going to see way more classic Australiana way up north. Um, like as you cut across the top of Victoria and the Mildura area, you're, you've got a lot of, uh, it, it's, it's like the, the wall-to-wall horizon kind of place. Uh, no real mountains, no nothing. It's it's like the Iowa, the Grain Belt area. And uh, I, I was just flying balloons up there a while ago. Yeah, you, you just cut straight over that and head up the back back towards Brisbane. But uh, it's it's understandable. I mean, you know, Proserpine, you were in the bustling metropolis of Proserpine for four whole days. You had to cut something out. <laughs> we did, we did. And, and and honestly, when we were in Perth, I mean, I, I feel a little bad because Perth in my movie gets a little bit of the, plays like a bad guy. Um, <laughs> bad rap. When really, I think Perth was really beautiful and wonderful. It just wasn't, somehow we had been out, an outback for about two weeks at that point and it just didn't seem totally right. Like yeah. under any other the circumstances I would have loved Perth yeah, Perth is a beautiful place, and actually, it's got quite an active aviation community there. And uh, guys, are, and, and you know, once again, having lived in the states and lived in the aviation culture in the United States, I have to ask you: How would you compare the aviation culture in this country by compare? I mean, could you compare it in your experience to uh, to the United States? I think it's similar. I, I think the pilots here have the same likes, dislikes, fears of regulation, uh, want a uh, desire for freedom uh, of flight. Uh, I don't think it's any different in the two places. Like the U.S., we've seen a steady decline in numbers of aviators and amount of general and recreational aviation that goes on. Although, fortunately, that's starting to turn around now with the uh, Recreational Aviation Association of Australia, uh, our equivalent of like the light sport aircraft movement and sport pilot. Yeah, you know, what's happened is that as avionics have become more and more sophisticated, one looks at the price of the avionics is so affecting the price of new aircraft that if you go back to the simpler avionic structure that served so well for so many years before all this uh, moving maps and heads-up display and everything else, I, I think that when you get back to the recreational airplane, you're, you're probably eliminating a lot of the sophisticated avionics that drive up the price. 
Well, you're certainly eliminating the need to have them all certified, tracked and paperwork that exceeds the weight of the aircraft and so on because uh, you can some of the RAOs aircraft down here have got a better kit out than some of the uh, full GA aircraft that we go flying and they, you know, they've got full moving maps and GPSs and the whole glass cockpit thing happening for them and it's like a lot cheaper even than to get it in GA because it doesn't have to be certified. Well, we were just talking that if you uh, simply update your GPS with a new data chip uh, to to make it current. It requires a logbook entry uh, yep. in your maintenance manual uh, signed off with your pilot name, your serial number, and the date and all that stuff yep. uh, just to update the database. It's considered preventive maintenance. I think it's pretty universal all around the world, the old joke that, you know, the aircraft cannot take off until the weight of the paperwork ex- equals or exceeds the mass of the aircraft. It's certainly the case here, even with balloons. I think it's cool that you're learning to fly a balloon. I would do <laughs> that too. Oh, it's beautiful. If you get the chance, uh, you definitely want to get up and fly them. They're, they're just beautiful. And ballooning, like recently uh, a couple of the guys from here were out ballooning over um, Lake Eyre in the middle of Australia, which uh, thanks to a lot of the rain that we've had recently is, has started filling up, although I've heard lately that it started draining out again as well. Um, but for, for a few months there, Lake Eyre had a lot of water and it was bringing a lot of tourists in and they were flying balloons over there. said it was absolutely wow. amazing. I've experienced it on a ski trip at Steamboat Springs, and it was one of the most spectacular experiences of my life. I've also had a chance to see the huge balloon festivals at Reno and Albuquerque. Oh, yeah. And Lots of special shapes. Abs- oh, God, to see all the shapes and, and colors and designs, uh, absolutely awesome. Well, if you ever see the one that looks like a Formula One racing car, I was crew chief for that down here in Australia. We um, we had that for a few seasons of the Grand Prix here in, in Melbourne, and and uh, so, yeah, I got to run around with a bunch of guys on the ground and the pilot. And, uh, yeah, we had to pack that sucker up. It was really interesting. I'll have to look for that. <laughs> Some of the things that I, I noted from the movie were things like, you know, you got to do whale watching by boat as well as from the air uh, later on. So it wasn't all just, just flying. It looks like you, um, like Mel had put together a pretty good uh, package of, of things to do at various locations, yeah? Oh, yeah. I mean, it was amazing. So so much of it is not even in the movie. I mean, we went to uh, a mo- uh, a mine and we went we, we we drove a jeep up to a really steep mountain and we did so many fun things i really... think maybe all of us might agree that the uh, most memorable was uh, the boat cruise on the yellow river in the northern territory uh, yeah, okay. that was spectacular uh, yeah, because I saw some of the things like landing on the beach at Brampton Island, and uh, yeah, it was a it was a real runway, not a beach runway, but it was is right there. So you you did get to explore and ex- and and see everything we've got, like from the um, we've got the Great Barrier Reef off the Queensland coast, and you know Kakadu, and around over the top end, uh, down around the bottom, and the Great Australian Bight, and the uh, the Nullarbor. Uh, doing the Nullarbor Plain. So you you really saw the whole range of of countryside we've got. Yeah, I think when people ask me what my favorite part was, I usually say it's the, you know, northwestern tip to me. Anything between Gov and, you know, I guess Cervantes was really the most fascinating to me. The horizontal waterfalls and Monkey yeah. Mia, where we were eternally waiting for the dolphins to show up. <laughs> yeah, they can be fickle beasts, can't they? <laughs> yes. And the pinnacles just north of Perth, they're just... Lake Argyle. Lake Argyle, yep. it's like natural wonders. I mean, it's really 
incredible country. But if you wanted a real adventure, did you do much driving over here on the wrong side of the road? No, I, I actually stayed for another month after the trip. Uh, I stayed with my brother for an extra month and we rented a car and drove up uh, the coast to almost all the way to Cairns and I got my share of driving on the left. <laughs> <laughs> and you can also attest to what your father was saying that you need months to see Australia if you're doing it by car because it's amazing the number of times people come out and they arrive in Sydney and they say, I've got a week, I want to see all of Australia and you just they wonder why everyone laughs. Yeah. We're on, yeah. literally on the floor in hysterics when we hear it every time. Yeah, yeah. It takes you a week just to get out to Ayers Rock, let alone anything else. That's a common misnomer that we hear. You know, people say Australia is an island nation, but uh, perhaps uh, for the benefit of our non-Australian listeners, you could describe uh, firsthand uh, how big this country really is. It's as big as the United States. Yep. It is. I remember it we saw it. Yeah, I remember in the souvenir stores they would have these postcards where they had the United States superimposed on Australia or vice versa, and you could see that it's really quite comparable in size. Yeah, Texans don't quite like seeing the size of their state against the size of ours. So yeah, oops. <laughs> no, it's really, it's really, really vast, and and it's so. It's full of so many different geographical areas. You know, you have anything from the desert all the way to the rainforest, um, huge empty places and forests and mountains and lakes and oceans and beaches. It's it's really an incredible place. Plus that big empty in the middle. A big empty. Right. And even around the coast, I mean, you know, aside from the cities, Australia is pretty empty. And I, I found that it's sort of like what America maybe was like, I don't know, 200, 300 years ago. Yep. Another thing that I would like to say is, and I hope I'm not making any, any enemies <laughs> on this side of the world by saying this, but I really like the Australian people. They were just so genuinely nice. And I live in Los Angeles, so... Look, I think part of that also is the uh, getting out into the country. Uh, living in a city can can take that edge off a lot of people. Uh, you know, I met a lot of a lot of great Americans when I was traveling a, a bit in the um, the country parts of America when I was living over this in the states. But you know, you could also feel incredibly lonely in the cities if you didn't already know people. And uh, I've heard people saying the same thing about Melbourne and Sydney. But generally, you can start a conversation with someone in a pub pretty easy, and and um, it all goes crazy from there. You know. <laughs> yeah. Now I was going to ask you guys, uh, sort of time stuff to get get away from us a little bit here, but I was going to ask you. Uh, now I heard I heard you mention Elliot that you're flying a Bonanza these days. Is that right? Yes, I am. A lovely aircraft. Uh, what type of Bonanza? I have an F-33A. I've had it since about 1993. Yeah, you know, it's one of the things that's uh, brought Monica and me back together again because uh, I fly a, uh, with a group that flies about 140 airplanes into Oshkosh every year for the oh, Great cool. Air Bonanza. Show. Bonanzas to Oshkosh? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Bonanzas to Oshkosh, absolutely. And when Monica said AirVenture wanted to air her film, I said, well, you're coming with me and you're going <laughs> to camp with us and you're going to fly in the formation with us into Oshkosh. And she's cool. been doing that for the last four years or so. And, uh, Monica, uh, how much flying are you doing these days? Are you still quite active with us? Um, well, I initially when I came back from Australia, you know, shortly after I got married and had two children. So I have to admit that they were about six years when I didn't fly at all. And then as I started to show my film and took it to Oshkosh, people asked me that question. And I had to admit quite embarrassed that I was, you know, not flying and I was on maternity leave and whatever. It just seemed like it was the wrong answer after you show sort of an inspiring film. You can't have that as the answer. 
masters. <laughs> I decided yeah, okay, by next year. Yeah, it just seems sort of like a downer, you know. You show this film, and and then it's like ah, and then I stopped flying. <laughs> I decided by next year I'm going to have a different answer to that question, and uh, so I did. So I found a flight instructor and got my uh, biennial flight review done, and so I'm now current again, coming up on I would say a year and three quarters now. So I've been flying again, and recently this year took my children up, and I fly about I would say maybe once or twice a month. It's still difficult to make the time when you have two small children, but every now and then I steal myself away on a Tuesday morning and I sneak out to the airport and I pre-flight that 172 and take off and fly over my hometown and over Pasadena or whatever. And it's just, it's a little bit like going to church, you know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, very nice. I, I, I remember reading a, a little short story by Richard Bach about uh, pilots flying on Sundays. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And That's have for you... me, it's tu- usually Tuesday mornings when the kids are in school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and have either of you uh, done any, any other types of trips like this since or uh, and if not, are there any plans to do any more in the future? Um, I haven't done any trips like this since yet. However, I you know now that I have taken my kids flying, I, I I said this recently in a in a in an after screening that I wouldn't rule out possibly doing flyabout part two in about ten years when my daughter could get her pilot's license and we could fly around Africa. I was just at nice. AOPA summit this weekend and. I couldn't resist talking to two of those tour companies that do tours like this around Africa. And I have to say it's quite tempting. What about you, Elliot? Well, I just came back from a trip to uh, California with stops in New Orleans, Galveston, uh, Pasadena, uh, Palm Springs, El Paso. But it's, I haven't done any trips of this nature, you know, organized trips. Uh, I look at them from time to time and candidly they all pale compared to this <laughs> Australian experience. So, sounds like you may have to do the African run. Well, you know, that's one thing I've asked my wife repetitively about, and uh, she's constantly afraid of taking the medication that you need to take in Africa. Yeah. Um, so she's put her foot down on that one. Well, um, uh, Otherwise, I would have done it long ago. What we need to do with both of you guys is get you back here to Australia where you don't need any shots and uh, get you here and uh, have a tour around Victoria and across to Tasmania. Oh, oh. I would love to do that. <laughs> and so would I. I'm, I. I'm definitely coming back to Australia and I want to, you know, see Tasmania and maybe New Zealand, although I guess that maybe I shouldn't mention that. No, um, that's okay. no New that's Zealand's okay. a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the Kiwis call Australia the West Island because they have the North Island and the South Island. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, no, it's uh, I'm, I was born in New Zealand, so uh, it's a it's a beautiful place and definitely worth seeing from the air. We have a- yeah, there are yeah, places but- in New Zealand that do this, like fly in New Zealand. Yep. Uh, but you know the the ones that I know of in New Zealand, you're flying with one of the local pilots in your airplane. You're not in charge of the airplane yourself. Yeah. And it's a different experience and probably necessary because most people don't have sufficient mountain flying experience. There's a lot of mountain flying. There's a lot of very, um, well, variable weather conditions. There's some parts that are nice, flat and, and easy, but uh, it's it's a very hilly terrain being volcanic and um, it's it's sort of like on the opposite side of the Pacific Plate from California, really. You, you do need to know your mountain flying, especially when flying in the South Island. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we probably need to wrap it up there, guys. We really appreciate you uh, spending some time and telling us all about your trip around our fair country here. And uh, it's always interesting to hear. I, I'm always interested in the, in the cultural differences, having spent a lot of time doing, do, you know, the hangar flying stuff, uh, living in Arkansas, of course. Uh, you know, you, you get time to do a lot of that sort of stuff here. And um, I, I always sort of, maybe it's a different culture here in Melbourne, but I always sort of found it was a little bit lacking here in Australia by comparison. But uh, I'm encouraged to, to find that you, you didn't find it that way. So maybe it's uh, just me, which is probably a good thing. So, uh, Monica, uh, the uh, the website if people haven't seen the movie yet and the movie's called Fly About and the website is at flyaboutmovie.com that's correct and we can also follow you on Twitter yes I'm on Twitter my, my Twitter name is Fly About and I'm also I have a Facebook page also called Fly About it's very easy to remember and Elliot do you uh, do you uh, spend much time uh, with do you have a web presence at all uh, I run the Bonanzas to Oshkosh website uh, b2osh.org I, I led the Bonanzas to Oshkosh for about six years and turned it over to someone else about two years ago but I'm still very active in it so that's what was that again Bonanzas to Osh.com it's uh, it's B the letter B the number two osh.org excellent we'll pop nice. that in the show notes uh, thank Thanks very much for joining us on the show today, Elliot Schiffman and Monica Petrillo, and we'll hope to talk to you again sometime in the uh, near future. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for having us. It's great to chat with you. Coming up after the break, what's it like to be an air traffic controller in New Zealand? And more importantly, what's it like to be related to Grant McHeron? The answers to those questions and more when Playing Crazy Down Under continues. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. Always wanted to be a Top Gun? Looking for the ultimate heart-pumping experience? JetRide gives you that and more. With your personally tailored flight and individual gift pack, JetRide will make your dreams come true. At up to 900 k's an hour in a Soviet-era L-39, this is the jet fighter thrill of a lifetime. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Nothing is impossible. The Aussie Geek Podcast brings you the best from the world of technology. Each week, Dave, Kate, Nightwise, and Keith bring you technology news highlights, great software finds, and the best of the web. The geeks are joined by friends of the show who bring their own unique and global perspectives on the world of technology and the way we live in it. Subscribe today in iTunes or visit us at AussieGeekPodcast.com. The Aussie Geek Podcast is a proud member of the Lifestyle Pod Network. The Aussie Geek Podcast. Bloody awesome tech. Now, we've talked before to uh, air traffic controllers over here in Australia, and of course, we've got Ben Ippolito with his segment talking about the way things work here. But uh, how does air traffic control work over there in New Zealand? Well, joining us on the line now from uh, New Zealand is Don McLean to tell us all about it. Hi there, Don. Uh, good morning, Steve. Welcome to the show, mate, and uh, thanks for joining us. We should kick off by uh, talking about uh, your uh, relationship to Grant. Okay. Um, now, you told us beforehand you're going to disown him. That, oh, we know, we can't say that. No, I won't do that. <laughs> I'll um, go on. Everyone else has, even my sister. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm speaking Kiwi, so it's Grant to me, not Grant. Oh, yeah, that's all right. There you go. We, we can speak all languages here, mate. Um, Grant's father and myself are direct cousins. Uh, our mothers were sisters. And back in uh, our young days, Jim, his father, always had an interest in flying, and he eventually joined the Air Force. And uh, as a dutiful cousin and quite amazed at what he'd done, I did the same thing. So I followed him into the Air Force and we both ended up on P3 Orions with 5 Squadron in Whanuapai. And uh, Jim eventually got transferred to Wellington, uh, which he just detested, and he eventually left the Air Force and did his other things overseas uh, in Australia and uh, currently in Thailand. I stayed on in the Air Force for some 10 years And during that time, most of it was on the P3s. I did two years on Bristol freighters and was based in Singapore in the early 70s. And we did uh, relief flights up to Vietnam, uh, taking up medical supplies and food supplies to uh, mainly uh, support personnel to the uh, forces up there. So we did quite a bit of flying around to Vietnam. And when I came back from Singapore, I stayed on the P3s for a short time, and then, uh, like Jim, I was transferred to Wellington. Not a good move for me. Uh, I detested doing nine-to-five work, stuck in a little office in Defence Headquarters. And in the mid-70s, air traffic control was very short of controllers in New Zealand, and they advertised for people with a background in aviation to join ATC and uh, do a um, short course, high-pressure course, for about six weeks and then be thrown into the field and look after airplanes from the other end. And I applied and was successful with that. Went down to Christchurch, did my six to seven week course down there. And my first job as a controller was at a place called Ardmore, which is about two or three miles to the northeast of Auckland Airport. And it's a GA training facility basically back then and had the highest number of movements in New Zealand over any other airport. So we were doing uh, around five or 600 movements a day back then. And on the weekends, we're getting up to a thousand movements a day. (laughs) That was, that was pretty big. It was pretty big. Yeah. We, um, That was in the 70s, yeah? Yeah, that was 77 I joined and I got uh, rated at the end of 77 and I worked there for two years. Ardmore is probably a bit like Bankstown, I guess, in Sydney, all pretty much general aviation and uh, very busy with training facilities all over the place. And back then they were using Tomahawks and Cherokees and Cessnas. And I think now they've advanced a little bit and gone to, um, I think, probably mainly the same sort of aeroplanes, but uh, the newer models and a bit more high performance. Yeah. And Ardmore now, it's totally uncontrolled. I've, I've heard a few folks saying it's an interesting place with a lot of uh, warbirds operating out of there as well. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, that's their main base there. And when we were there controlling, uh, they had four runways, two parallel in a northerly direction, two parallel in a northeasterly direction. And so we're using crossing runways, parallel runways, uh, simultaneous takeoffs and landings. And it was pretty full on, but it was a yeah. good introduction to ATC. <laughs> <laughs> Baptism by fire. Yeah, it was. Straight into the deep end. It's interesting, Don, uh, when you talk about uh, being in the military, how does the military handle their air traffic control over there? Do they have controllers of their own or do they uh, they use all the uh, civilian sector to handle it for them? Yeah, unlike Australia, the RAAF have their own controllers and New Zealand uh, controlling is supplied by Airways Corporation now. Back then it was uh, Civil Aviation Department and they supplied the military controllers and the civil controllers as well. From Ardmore, I moved on to Auckland Airport and worked in the tower in Auckland Airport and got up to the bigger aeroplanes, of course. 
And that was in the days of DC-8s, the early introduction of DC-10s and friendships and uh, Vickers Viscounts, all that old sort of British stuff that we had then. And gradually uh, the airlines started going more American and particularly in New Zealand went uh, the Boeing way pretty much full on and bought their 747s and uh, since then of course 767s and uh, now they've got uh, 777s as well. And um, I did two years in the tower at Auckland and then I moved uh, into area radar and uh, back then radar was just radar, just raw radar, just a little dot moving across the screen. Everything was uh, handwritten and all your headings, altitude assignments and anything to do with the aircraft was all handwritten and uh, followed along on this little dot on the screen. So it was pretty rudimentary and it wasn't until um, I think the mid-80s that uh, they finally went to secondary surveillance radar uh, where aircraft were fitted out with transponders. We were able to interrogate them and our life became a whole lot uh, more easy with uh, with labels on (laughs) aeroplanes. So so did you have, so you would have had the round screen with just yeah, it was a an old Marconi. Yeah, yeah, classic. And so you you had the strips down the side with altitude and heading and things like that, yeah? Yeah, just on a little board in front of us with the uh, big round radar screen uh, sitting up wow. and a um, compass reticule around the outside. And every morning we had to uh, calibrate distances on it. And that was all done by um, getting a piece of paper or a piece of cardboard and marking one mile right, uh, one mile distances along this piece of cardboard. And then you'd place that along uh, one target to another target and see how far apart they were. <laughs> wow. That was so pretty that was basic. Seriously hardcore. <clears throat> yeah, it was. And it uh, was subject to weather interference as well. So any uh, rain or thunderstorms blotted out the targets as well. Is it, yeah, I guess the radar couldn't get through thick precipitation, could it? No, it picked up anything that moved, basically. <laughs> and the other big fault was it that uh, an aircraft flying tangentially to the radar head would disappear as well because it was uh, not detected as coming or going. Oh, and wow. So it would fade as it went around an arc around the radar head. That would have made it pretty hard to keep the flick, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. So that was uh, probably two and a half years in area radar and aligned with that was Oceanic, uh, which was uh, totally non-radar procedural work. And we looked after traffic halfway across the Tasman, up to just south of Noumea, south of Fiji and across to Tahiti and down to Antarctica. And we um, had a huge flight following board for that as well. And uh, we just went by position reports from aircraft and just kept track of them that way. So, which is very similar to how it's done now anyhow. Um, no, the modern stuff is all computerized. And, oh, uh, okay. I thought again, they were still relying on position reports. Uh, well, it's all done by satellite now. So the aircraft actually transmits its position okay. uh, via satellite, comes back to the computer and it's plotted on, um, and again, it's another type of radar screen okay. or computer screen. So that's all modernized as well. And there's almost no um, direct communication between pilot and controller by voice. It's all done by computer. Okay. And if they, want, if they want a level change, they just push a button, a message pops up on the screen saying such and such a flight wants uh, a certain flight level. And the controller will just uh, check it out and check the computer push the button it goes back and says climb or descend great was this is this mostly just over the pacific because i thought the north atlantic they were still using a lot of manual reports as well they were but uh airways new zealand uh, pretty innovative and they had a lot to do with uh, designing the new uh system uh with lockheed martin okay and they eventually went to the states and i think uh on the pacific side anyway uh, pretty much the same thing is done between here and uh the us right there's a lot of talk over here at the uh, over here in australia 
earlier about the the so-called next gen, the ADSB. Uh, how are plans for that? Speaking of all this new technology over there in New Zealand, ADSB is up and running. Um, I don't have a lot to do with it now because I'm back in aerodrome control again, and it's uh, so long since I worked in Oceanic uh, that I only know the the basics just as I've outlined there. So, but ADSB is uh, in and it's being used extensively across the Tasman now. Uh, here in Australia, it's ADSB above 30,000. You've got a full picture via ADSB of what's going on. But uh, how is it in New Zealand? Is it? Is I it think it's pretty thing? much, well, we don't use it domestically, but with the oceanic stuff, uh, I think it's probably the same, probably 280 and above. It's all ADSB. So now you said you're working in a tower now. Uh, which which tower is that, Don? Yeah, I went from my area radar into approach radar at Auckland, and I worked on approach radar uh, for 15 years. And I was sort of getting into a bit of a rut, really. Uh, I was enjoying it still, but I needed something different. So I applied for a, a job in Hong Kong. which <laughs> Step uh, up a tad. <laughs> yeah. And I eventually got that. And we moved to Hong Kong and did six years up there. Was that we, uh, running Kai Tak? Yeah, started at Kai Tak. And then we moved to the new airport at Chaklip uh, Kok. Okay, yep. So after that, I was uh, my contract had finished and I was due to come home. And I applied to uh, Airways again for a job. And uh, they gave me one Palmerston North Airport in the uh, lower North Island. And that was um, a mixture of general aviation and uh, regular public transport. And uh, there was an area club there, which was reasonably strong, but it was starting to fail. And so it uh, wasn't terribly busy until an Indian ex-Air Force, I think, guy arrived and set up a flying school and started training Indian students from uh, direct from India. And that um, spread quite significantly right through New Zealand there are a number of aero clubs that uh, did the same thing and okay. it was quite a big money earner for them I think at the time and it's still going on now although to a lesser degree. Yeah we have that a lot over here um, a lot of uh, Middle Eastern Asian and um, Indian students coming in to learn to fly at places like Wangaratta up on the Gold Coast as well uh, over in, in Perth South Australia there's there's a lot of flying organizations and, and training schools yeah, that yeah. rely a lot on the internationals. Yeah and that's still going on and um, the Indian thing was very strong in, in uh, Palmerston North. And when I left, it was uh, very busy. And, of course, down there, they've got the University of uh, Aviation uh, allied with the Massey University. So the Massey Flying School down there is continuously churning out the initio pilots. And they either stay with Massey and become instructors or they look for um, jobs in the private sector. And most of them are hoping for uh, commercial, of course, with um, either Air New Zealand or a third level airline here. Yeah, some are, um, we've been told some are over in the UK getting conversion over to Airbus with Jetstar and um, can't remember the name of the organisation that's doing the training over in, in the UK, but uh, Jetstar set up the pilot academy uh, both there and here in Australia. Um, yeah, I was going to come to that. Uh, side of it as well because when I came to Hamilton there was a big training school set up here which was a branch of a UK company called CTC Command That's Training Centre and CTC set up, a hu- set up a huge complex here with hangars and aircraft and um, instructors and it's uh, quite a big business and they were doing the same thing 
uh, they were getting Europeans coming across, sponsored basically by, I think, uh, Jetstar and EasyJet, um, BEA, I think, had a hand in it. And so that they were churning out pilots from here for those airlines and they were going back guaranteed jobs. And they've since branched out a little further and they're now training um, Vietnamese for Jetstar and we've just taken in, or they've just taken in, uh, 15 Japanese students. So that's quite an international sort of thing down there. At any one time, they've got about uh, 150 students. Cool. So they keep us busy in Hamilton. Uh, <laughs> and as well as that, uh, there's an aero club as well. Okay. And I say, so, uh, sorry. I was going to say, and as if all that wasn't enough, I understand you get a few balloons in the area. Yep. Uh, Hamilton's got a very uh, active ballooning community. And they're flying probably every Saturday and Sunday and quite often during the week. Yep. And uh, they have a big balloon festival here. And that's yep. uh, in August, September time. Yeah, I'm hoping to get over for the next one. Yeah, it's um, it's a big deal. I think this year they must have had about 30-odd balloons, I think. And uh, they have these mass liftoffs and uh, they have <laughs> yep. um, accuracy flying where they try to pick things off the top of a pole as they fly past. Yeah, And that all happens uh, just outside where I live here on Hamilton Lake. There's a big uh, common there where they launch from. Okay. Yeah, no, it's uh, the ballooning comps are a lot of fun, especially the accuracy ones. There's a group in Idaho where um, their accuracy is not to get something off a pole or drop something in the uh, sunroof of a car. You actually have to tip over a porta potty. Oh, okay. Uh, there's been a photo <laughs> going around of a, of a balloon knocking over a Porter potty, and everyone's like, "Oh man, poor guy!" What? An, uh, but is actually winning the competition. That somebody's <laughs> gone and photoshopped it and put four more porter potties in there just to to make it look like it's a real accident. Uh, I hate it when people do that, but it's, <laughs> yeah, if you look closely, you can see the competition number on his basket and everything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, the big one here is to get a thousand dollars off the top of a pole, which is about yep. uh, I don't know forty meters up. I think. Yeah, it's it's really tricky stuff. I've I've done it once. Uh, you've you've got to figure, try and figure out what the winds are doing, figure out where you're going to launch from and then ride the winds as best yeah, you can. Exactly. Get yeah. in. And our one was just dropping a, a marker on a target. But uh, no, it's good, it's good to hear that there's a, there's a good ballooning operation going on over there. I'm uh, being an you know, avid balloonist myself. Yes, I yes. get in there. I'll, um, I'm looking forward to coming over for balloons over Waikato one day. Yeah, they've um, got one commercial one and he uh, has got a basket that takes about 12, I think. Yeah. Uh, there's a big, th- yeah, there's a bigger one down in Christchurch and I think that takes about 20. Yeah, that, that'd be under like a 400. 100,000 cubic foot balloon. We, oh, it's we have, huge, yeah. yeah. There's a guy who flies one of those here in the Yarra Valley, but um, our biggest is a 350, which will take 16. Yeah. Yeah, so Hamilton uh, is where I'm at now, and I've been here three years, and um, I should be retiring, but I can't at the moment. Yeah, that's so, UFC thing? Um, oh, a little bit of that, and um, just other things that are going on. Just need to keep working for a wee while. Okay. Well, at least it's not a bad place to be. No, it's busy. It's um, been quiet for the last couple of months. Uh, probably because of the uh, recession, but uh, CDC have been going through a um, change of students where the uh, graduates have moved on and the new ones are coming in. And I think they start uh, flying full on in about two or three weeks' time. <laughs> That's when all hell breaks loose again. So, yeah, we're back up to 600, <laughs> 700 movements a day. Well, perhaps before we start talking, uh, Don, about some of the more specifics to do with air traffic control in New Zealand, I've got to ask you, what's it like over there at Kai Tech back in those days controlling aircraft over there? That must 
have been spectacular. Yep, Kai Tak was a great airport. I did mainly area radar in Kai Tak, but um, we had a lot to do with the approach guys, of course, and I worked in the tower for a short time as well. And um, it was just an amazing airport, watching those aircraft come down the slope and then do that, uh, what was it, 40, yeah, 43, degree, yeah, 43 degree, degree turn onto final yeah. at, about a, at about a mile, less than a mile out. In a market turn, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, checkerboard. Yeah, they had to cite the checkerboard, which was um, at the end of the um, glide slope. Well, it wasn't actually a glide slope. It was just an ILS um, without a glide slope. And yep. then they had to see the, the uh, marker board turn hard right and land if they could. I, I, I thought when sometimes when it was kind of cruddy weather, they, would, um, they, they wouldn't rely on the site. They'd just hear the marker go. Um, no, they weren't allowed to. They had to see the marker board. That, okay. was, a, that was a requirement. So if conditions were marginal, they'd come right down uh, probably to about uh, four or 500 feet. And if they didn't cite the marker board, it was a mandatory right turn and a go around. Wow. And then they had to climb out um, over the VOR and out through um, a gap in the hills out to the southeast. <laughs> fun stuff. Yeah, it was pretty impressive. And yeah. it was fun working there. It was um, a pretty old airport and uh, it was pretty basic, although they did have uh, semi-modern equipment. But yeah. uh, when they went to the new one at uh, CLK, uh, everything changed and they had this um, huge uh, centre, uh, big brand new tower and uh, all the modern uh, nav aids and um, all the all modern the radar stuff. equipment. Yeah, all the best stuff. How was it? And uh, were you there when uh, the Chinese 747-400 brand new went off the end of the runway? Uh, no, that was about a year before I got there, I think. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, so I didn't see any um, accidents at, uh, at, sorry, at uh, Kai Tak. Yeah. But um, about a year after we started at CLK, uh, there was a MD-11 uh, got t- caught in a windshear and he uh, lost it on the runway yep. and ended up upside down on the side of the runway. Yeah, that's where you can get the photo of an aircraft taxiing out with the um, smashed remains of the same airline in the background. That's the one, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Oops. Don't yeah. look right. <laughs> yeah, yeah incredibly lucky that one that um, more weren't killed. I think it was only yeah. three in the end, three or four. Very lucky. But it uh, was just totally upside down facing the wrong way the ditch. The air traffic or the airspace around uh, around Hong Kong, is it very congested? I imagine it would be. It is. Um, Hong Kong's in an awkward place because it's um, in a little uh, bowl of China and the uh, airspace boundary is probably only about uh, 10 miles away to China, to the north and to the west there's uh, Macau and there are two other Chinese airports on that boundary as well. So everything leaving Hong Kong going a long haul across to Europe has to get to an altitude where can enter Chinese airspace and be accepted by the Chinese at a metric level and they use metrics and we used uh, just standard altitudes. Oh joy. <laughs> so it's converting everything from uh, standard levels to metric levels and handing them off to the Chinese if they'll accept it and if. quite often they wouldn't. Oh, just, just to be gnarly or did they, what would um, I don't think they had the uh, experience in using radar so everything became procedural and it was uh, huge spaces between aircraft, 10 minutes maybe 15 minutes uh, spacing no matter what level if it was the same level it was huge about 20 minutes spacing I think wow that is and yeah the long hauls didn't like that very much at all because uh, in general they left Hong Kong around midnight and uh, to get to the UK or um, Europe in the early hours of the morning and they all wanted to leave at the same time so the Chinese (laughs) um, weren't very popular with them yeah of course not did any did any try and shift their well they couldn't really shift their flight plans could they to blow their time no the only way they could go was uh, down through Southeast 
Asia and across towards, um, I suppose, Dubai and around that way around the south of Europe. Oh, that's, yeah, that'll really And that's huge, yeah. 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 Okay. Now, I, I understand at one point when you were there, um, you wound up speaking to my sister on the on the radio when you were doing approach or, or area control. Yeah, I was on area and um, this Qantas flight came in from Sydney, I think it was, and the skipper said, uh, do you know Don McLean? And I said, uh, this is he. <laughs> and he said, oh, I've got a nice young lady here that would like to meet up with you. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Who do I know? No, no Qantas. <laughs> and I didn't actually speak to, speak to her on the radio, but uh, that night I gave my phone number across uh, every man and his dog in uh, Hong Kong airspace and had my phone number. <laughs> and uh, later that night I got a phone call and it was great catching up and um, hearing where you were, Grant, and um, <laughs> where your parents were and what was happening and it was really good. Yeah, that's that's very our family, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Catch yeah. up over the radio. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, we had heard from Tanya for years and years, or nor you actually, but um, it was yeah. great catching up with her, yeah. Yeah, I think I was in the States at the time. Yeah, that, yeah, I think you were. <laughs> and um, unfortunately, uh, your parents being in uh, Thailand, uh, not very far away, we didn't get a chance to catch up with them either. Yeah, because it's only a few hours. Yeah, yep. And in fact, I think your mother came across to Hong Kong at one stage uh, with a sports team. That'd be right. Uh, and um, we still didn't catch up with her then. Uh, we're slack, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, we're not, we're not called the mobile McCarrens for nothing, mate. No. <laughs> <laughs> so have you got any um, any other fun stories of, uh, you know, like from back in the Auckland days or, or from Hong Kong that you're allowed to tell us? I think uh, one of the interesting ones I had was, um, I think it was a pop group coming into Auckland and they'd hired a, a Russian aircraft to bring all their uh, gear and this guy could hardly speak English at all. <laughs> the Vodka and, Express. Yeah. So it was, um, I think it was an illusion or something it was, one of those huge things that one of those cargo things that they have yeah and he had so little English we basically had to talk to him in sort of um, kitty language to get him down and established on the ILS uh-huh. but he got there in the end and um, after he landed he thanked us very much for understanding and uh, getting him down safely <laughs> uh, you get people like that uh, Hong Kong uh, with all the nationalities flying around there uh, yeah. language is a big problem and um, you just got to treat everyone differently and, and carefully I think the hardest ones uh, were probably from North Asia and some of the Chinese airlines as well. Uh, I think there were probably half a dozen different Chinese airlines used to come into uh, Hong Kong yep. and they all had uh, different degrees of um, English appreciation. <laughs> so again, you had to be careful with them and of course with typhoons and things around Hong Kong, they were very reluctant to fly anywhere near a thunderstorm and they would just take off off track without even telling anybody. Oh, great. And next thing you're watching this target it disappeared out to the south or the north and directly into the path of another flight going around the same weather. <laughs> and that uh, made it a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And so um, invariably, if there was a typhoon due, everybody would be rushing in to get to Hong Kong and get out again before the typhoon hit. Or if um, they were grounded and had to divert somewhere, at the end of the typhoon, there'd be this mad rush to come back in again. So um, it it wasn't uncommon to have 25, 30 aircraft on frequency and uh, watching them go all over the skies and do their thing. And and all relatively uncontrolled while you're trying to keep them in control. Yeah, to a degree. Um, I mean, obviously the the regular operators like Cathay Pacific and Dragon Air in Hong Kong had a lot of English-speaking Australians, Kiwis and Brits, Canadians, and they were 
were fine. Yeah. Uh, but the, as I say, the the ones from inland China and um, the Taiwanese, maybe uh, they're all a bit difficult, and they just ducked and dived all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> that probably explains a few grey hairs on all the controllers there, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, any other ones apart from that? Um, interesting go-rounds at uh, Kai Tak um, and some interesting landings, of course, watching them come around the corner and, uh, and a crosswind. Yeah. And try and put it on the runway because it wasn't a particularly long runway. Uh, it could handle 747s but um, quite easily, but uh, with crosswind conditions and um, marginal weather, they were all over the place and uh, sitting in the tower, they're just coming straight at you and then turning hard right on the <laughs> runway. Well, yeah, I, I, I got to Hong Kong once ages ago. Um, I remember I was I tran- transferred through there one time, but another time I was there for a very quick meeting, like in and out the same day type of thing. And um, the guys knew I was into aircraft, so they took me up to the um, – we, did, we didn't go to the famous bar cafe place on the roof oh, yeah, on the hotel yeah yeah but we did go to the parking lot and stood there uh, oh, yeah, for about yeah. half an hour just having a get to know you chat while watching the aircraft yeah and, you know, you'd see a Qantas aircraft come in and they, they'd sort of do it okay and you'd see one of the Chinese airlines come in and they'd be wallowing around and a few yeah. of the others come in and that was you know, all over the place and then suddenly a Cafe Pacific 747-400 had come in and it was just crisp precise up bang down boom absolutely. Yeah, well, they'd, yeah of course they'd done it so often that they'd come oh, yeah. down they'd, they'd see the marker board and um, instead of waiting until the last minute to turn on to the uh, final approach, they'd yeah. widen out a little bit to the north. They couldn't go very far because there's a big mountain there. Yeah. But uh, they would widen out sort of uh, 10 degrees uh, or so, and then that would make it a more gentle turn back onto final when they came around the corner. Ah, okay. Because one of the guys was saying, yeah, and he probably was sipping his cup of tea in the other hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And other than that, um, oh, in general aviation, you see all sorts of things. Had a couple of nasty crashes when I was at Ardmore. And uh, and I had a couple at um, Palmerston North when I was down there. And other than that, it's just uh, aviation as we know it. Didn't didn't Ardmore just recently? The one of the Spitfires was landing there and had a gear collapse. Yes, yeah, I think that was. Um, that was only a matter of a couple of months ago, wasn't it? Yeah, it was fairly recent. Yeah, and um, yeah, Ardmore had a couple of small crashes there. Auckland, I fortunately wasn't on duty when they had a couple of big ones there of the DC-8 yeah. and uh, a friendship that went into the harbour off the end. And other than that, I've probably uh, had a fairly lucky career in that respect. Um, you don't want to see that sort of thing. No, no. it's not, not particularly pleasant. No, and other than that. The odd mayday that comes out with um, cracked windscreens or rapid decompression or something like that from a commercial yeah. airline. All right, well, let's have a talk about uh, New Zealand airspace and the way it's all set up. Don, does it differ that much from the way we do things uh, here in Australia or is it sort of the uh, the IATA standard, that sort of thing? We're pretty much the same now. The airspace classes are pretty much the same. You used to have, um, it was an information service like at Moorabbin or um, something like that, wasn't it? The controllers basically just gave traffic information to aircraft and they changed that to Class D airspace, I think about six months ago. Yeah, that was where, like um, June. Where, Everything went to Class D. June, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the gap, the gap to Class D transition. That's right, gap, yeah. And so um, now there's more positive control by controllers on aircraft operating into those sort of airports, which is what we've been doing here for a long time anyway. Yeah, and the, the, gap, the gap was was positive control, but it was uniquely Australian, let's put it Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think Air Services uh, had some concerns, didn't they, that um, there wasn't enough 
uh, safety built into what they were doing. Yeah, we'd had we'd had a midair in Melbourne and a midair in um, in Sydney and a couple other issues that came up. Yeah, uh, and so they they were getting concerned before then, and then they changed the way it had to be and set up reporting points, and it just moved the bottleneck out to the reporting points, which was where one of the Sydney midairs occurred. Right, and uh, yeah, they just realised, look, gap is we we should just move to class D and be done with it. And yes, they did it. Yeah, and I think um, well, from what I've heard. Uh, some of the controllers had a little bit of trouble adapting to that. Uh, we had one of our guys here at Hamilton. He got a job at Moorabbin and he went across there last year. And, of course, he was totally used to Class D airspace, so he didn't have a problem, but he's watching these other guys trying to come to grips with what they had to do or what they should be doing. Yeah, well, I'd sort of had gaps since the late 70s there. So, you know, it's uh, particularly for pilots flying around. Well, I mean, I fly in and out of Moorabbin, so you're sort of used to the way it works. So it's it's a little bit of a cultural yeah. shift for, for everybody. Yeah, but yeah also- and it, it does become that way. You become uh, accustomed to what happens at a particular airport and uh, you can fly that airport quite easily. But uh, you get strangers come in that have flown at a totally different uh, type of controlled airport and they probably find it a bit difficult. Yeah, plus the whole um, when they went the Class D transition, there was all new. They'd been slowly phasing some of it in, but they, it was, you know, the whole call ground control before startup in some places and, yeah, yep. and things like that. And so a little bit more strict on the ground to help prevent runway incursions and with the limit that they introduced in the old gap towards the end of the gap they introduced the limit of the number of aircraft per controller per runway in the circuit yep, yep. and you were having to call up to get startup permission or book a time to be able to go out yeah and yeah and we um we don't have start times uh, here so much but uh, they do have to get a positive clearance before they uh, even leave the apron yeah. that's what's happened here they've moved it to just the positive clearance i think they've taken out the start time that was something they put in at Morabin because they were finding a lot of people just sitting waiting to go yeah yeah so with yeah. Uh, with uh, yes, sorry. with uh, new zealand now I guess the, you'd, would it be fair to say that there's three major airports that would be Auckland I guess Wellington and Christchurch and you're there in Hamilton which is I guess a bit south of Auckland is it? Yeah it's about 135 k's by road from Auckland to Hamilton uh, we are an international airport we had Air New Zealand flying in here regularly well it started off with Freedom Air which is a subsidiary of Air New Zealand and they were flying out of here across to um, Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane and Coolangatta at one stage and then yeah. they found it wasn't uh, profitable so they pulled the plug and uh, now we've got Pacific Blue in here and they do four flights a week across to Brisbane. Yeah, I think Freedom were going into Newcastle at one point. Oh, I don't know. They may have done. Yeah, just north of Sydney. I don't think they were going to Sydney itself. They were going up to Newcastle. Oh, okay. So do you get a, I mean, what sort of traffic would you have transiting that airspace where you are, I guess, heading north and south between, I don't know, Wellington and uh, Auckland? Is it quite Well, our control zone is only up to um, two and a half thousand feet. So we don't get much transiting traffic at all in terms of IFR or, you know, um, regular public transport. But we get a lot of VFR transits and uh, they're going from the likes of Ardmore or Auckland, as you say, further down the island to other small airports, down to the ski fields, uh, down to Palmerston North, across to Napier on the east coast. So we do get a a bit of that, but most of them steer clear because they know how busy it is uh, most of the time here and they just go around the outskirts of the control zone, which isn't huge. It's, um, It's only 10 miles north and south and uh, about five miles either side of the airport. So it's a racetrack type pattern control zone. 
and it's not a big deal for anybody uh, wanting to um, go past to go around the outside of the control zone quite easily. And they can stay below controlled airspace, radar controlled airspace at uh, 3,500 feet, 4,500 feet most of the time. And that's an interesting point in itself. Uh, what's the radar coverage like over there in uh, in New Zealand? Is it quite extensive or is it sort of the similar to the way they do it here? There are radar heads in Auckland just to the northeast of Hamilton. There's a radar head. Uh, there's one down in Palmerston North, uh, one in Wellington, one at the top of the South Island and one in Christchurch. And so it gives uh, radar coverage pretty much over the whole country and it loses at a low level at the bottom of the South Island, probably below about 9,000 feet towards uh, Dunedin and into Queenstown. So Queenstown's uh, pretty much procedural control yeah. uh, below about uh, 9,000 feet. Yeah, and they're doing all the um, all the uh, GPS-guided approaches. The, the um, ac- yeah. I can't remember the acronym for it, the, uh, but all the precision approaches. Yeah, well, you've got the RNAV in there now and um, there's a new one that's, um, I think, in New Zealand are, are rated for and maybe Pacific Blue. I don't think Jetstar are and that's the new RNAV approach in there. Yeah, they're just working on that. I think actually Jetstar have just got their their approval for it because they were, I remember reading that uh, that was going to help Jetstar a lot with uh, reducing their number of cancellations due to weather. Yeah, exactly. So the actual radar coverage is pretty much over the whole country. Uh, the actual, any one radar head has a um, detection range out to 250 nautical miles from the head. So it uh, goes quite a way out into the Tasman and um, out across to the east as well. Dan was telling us earlier that uh, it's all based out of Christchurch. Like here in Australia, it's all based, the, the main area controls and so on are all out of uh, Melbourne and Brisbane. But in New Zealand, it's Christchurch, although post-earthquake, that may be changing. <laughs> well, yeah, that's been a bit embarrassing really. But um, when I first joined, we had uh, a main centre in Auckland, uh, one in Ohakia. They had their own um, control centre there for the military. Uh, Wellington had its own radar centre um, and Christchurch. And then, as you say, uh, when Airways uh, took over as an SOE back in the mid-80s, the bean counters said that it would be more economical to put uh, one big centre into somewhere, and they decided that somewhere would be Christchurch. And there was a lot of um, opposition to that, and they moved Wellington down there first. Auckland uh, dug their toes in, but eventually they had to give in. And then Ohakia moved down there probably oh, about five years ago, I think, under a lot of pressure. So as you say, they're all down there now. There's one big uh, control centre in the last couple of months. There's been lots of uh, people coming and going from the centre as the earth quake struck. <clears throat> they've had a couple of um, times where they've said they're going to vacate the centre. Yep. Uh, they never did, but uh, their limited services uh, kicked in pretty smartly. Although there was a bit of disruption, I think pretty much um, probably 99% of the flights just kept on going. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. There was uh, repeated warnings that we may go on, we may have to close any minute, so be ready yeah, for it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, they kept it going. And that's, that's one thing about having the two centres here in Australia. It's the same co- concept of technology allowing a single centre to control a whole country. But uh, at least here, if if something goes wrong in Melbourne or Brisbane, you can they can switch over. Yeah. And they use, because the, they've got their, uh, what they call a simulator, which is where they train the classes and so on, and they can that can cut over and go live. Yeah. Well, they've got one in Auckland still. The Oceanic Centre is still in Auckland. Okay. And they've got a uh, standby radar suite there for just the sort of thing that happened, but um, it uh, wouldn't have coped with uh, controlling the whole country, I don't think. Yeah. And uh, then it was a matter of getting uh, somebody who had a current rating up there to uh, actually operate the position. Yeah, that's the thing. There's like Brisbane and Melbourne here are live, ready to go. And, and yeah, it, it's not an easy 
cut over and it's not uh, just a flick of a switch by any means but they can they can bring people in and, and pull you know there's people who are trained able to handle it things like that yeah there are radar controllers in the oceanic center and they could provide a limited flight uh, information yeah. service but uh, they're not actually uh, rated to do um, approach vectoring and stuff like that yep. into Christchurch or Wellington or somewhere that's an interesting thing too uh, do they use the Eurocat system like they use here uh, what's that one Steve the um, well the, yeah, whole, the whole system yeah. here is based on the Eurocat the the Euro, uh, the um, oh sorry yes what else is called Aircat right yep. yeah so that's um, it's uh, pretty much like a Windows based uh, display system and computer oh, system although it's not <laughs> uh, <laughs> blue screen of death <laughs> <laughs> well yeah and that does happen but um, yeah that's from uh, Lockheed Martin I think that came from uh, so that, that's that system is throughout the whole country and it, uh, there are offshoots into the towers as well so we have a, a radar display in the control tower here and so we can watch aircraft on radar as well though we can't control them similar things in place in various towers here in Australia you can at least see what's going on around you and you have yeah. a hotline to like I imagine you guys would have a hotline to Auckland yeah we do we've got um, direct lines to every position in the country so we can ring anybody at any time although we just tend to uh, talk to our own radar controllers that do the uh, Hamilton approach okay alright Don we might leave it there mate that's been a really interesting discussion I'll tell you what I, I suppose it would be a, a big contrast between moving from, from Auckland to uh, Kai Tak and then back to back to New Zealand it would be a really interesting sounds like a really interesting career that you've had yeah it was and I'm glad we did the Hong Kong thing it was a good experience and um, I think uh, the background that I had here helped me in Hong Kong it would be pretty tough to go up there as a pretty new ab initio uh, radar controller that would be scary as <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, overall, um, ADC is a, a great uh, vocation and uh, I've enjoyed my time in it. I've done, what, 33 years now and still going. Uh, sitting in a tower at the end of my career is uh, interesting too, having been locked up in a radar room for most of it. Yeah, we had a couple of guys uh, that we chatted with at an air show. They're, they're local controllers and they volunteer to help do um, coordination at the air show. They're not actually controlling, of course, and, and run the Unicom and so on. And uh, one of them made the great comment of like, you know, when you're sitting there in the, in the room, you, you issue a command to an aircraft and a dot moves, whereas here you issue a command to an aircraft and this dirty great piece of metal goes Vroom! over your head. You know? yeah. Well, if you're lucky. <laughs> yeah, well. Yeah. yeah. You can issue instructions to aircraft here and they don't do a damn thing. <laughs> yeah, that's the joy of that training world, right? Exactly, yeah. yeah. I'm sure I've given a couple of controllers a grey here or two. I know I've done that to my instructors when I've been flying out of Moorabbin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That just happens every, every week on the podcast that happens here, Grant. Yeah, there is that. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of careers, if uh, people are interested to find out more about the way the uh, air traffic control system works or even careers over there, you can uh, check out uh, their website, which is uh, airways.co.nz. And uh, just having a click through here now, it looks like uh, they've got career op- options and career vacancies. So uh, for any of our uh, New Zealand listeners who might be interested in uh, having a look at that for a career, that's uh, certainly an option. But uh, Don, we, uh, we certainly thank you for joining us today and um, we hope to speak to you again sometime soon. Yeah, thanks, Steve. You're welcome. Thanks, Don. Appreciate it. Okay, Grant. Talk to you later. see Sydney from a different angle? Red Baron Adventures have the flight experience for you. From the aerobatic thrills of the Red Bull stunt plane to scenic flights over Sydney Harbour, there's something for everyone. So check it out at redbaron.com.au for the best seat in the house. G'day, I'm Michael. Hi, I'm Rosalyn. And we're We're from downwind.com.au, the website for aviation enthusiasts. Come and join a community of passionate aviators who love to share about their experiences and the joy of being in the air. 
On Downwind, you can participate in forum discussions, view great photos and videos, and keep up to date with a weekly newsletter. So come and join the community at downwind.com.au. Hi, this is Max Flight. This is Milford from Flight Time Radio. You can catch Grant and Steve each week on the Airplane Geeks podcast with their Australia Desk Report. Over on our podcast, Steve and Grant send in a bi-weekly update that covers flying in the Southern Hemisphere. Our listeners look forward to the Flying Down Under segment for the great interviews and a taste of aviation life from another point of view. www.airplanegeeks.com If you get a chance, visit flighttimeradio.com to learn a little about our radio show and podcast. Well, I've interrupted the show long enough, so let me turn all you plane crazies back over to the guys and their usual outstanding content. Cheers from America. You can find more great podcasts at lifestylepodnetwork.com.au. Well, there we go, Grant. A couple of really interesting interviews there. Interesting that uh, Elliot there was uh, talking about uh, flying his bonanzas into Oshkosh, and uh, actually there's been some developments. That's right, mate. Uh, I sent an email to Monica and Elliot once we knew we were going to Oshkosh, and unfortunately Monica is not going to be able to make it to Oshkosh because she's in Europe right now visiting family and having some fun over in Germany and so on. But uh, Elliot said, mate, if you can make it to Rockford, join the party. So thanks to his invitation, Baz Sheffers and I are going to join the uh, something like 120 to 140 Bonanzas and be part of the mass arrival into Oshkosh on the Saturday. So we're really looking forward to that. Awesome. And while you're doing that, David Vanderhoof and I are going to trek into Chicago and eat as much pizza as we can get our hands on. <laughs> awesome. I'm going into weight loss training so I can be ready to go fly small aircraft at Oshkosh. Yeah, I've been in weight loss training for a while. It's not working, though. <laughs> Might have something yeah, to do with aforementioned pizzas, perhaps. <laughs> that could be helping, yeah. <laughs> And, mate, interesting there to uh, to talk to Don about uh, air traffic control and the way they do it in New Zealand because, you know, I mean, those guys there have, I guess in a way they have an advantage of being, a, you know, a small nation where they can, you know, really kick these things off and, and try them on a, on a scale that perhaps you wouldn't be able to achieve in the US, for instance, where it's just so much larger scale. But, uh, you know, they, they really do some innovative things over there and you know, I quite often get to thinking as we, we go through the journey on this show that the Kiwis have really got it, uh, you know, really switched on when it comes to aviation in many facets. Well, as a friend of my father's from the Air Force, used to say New Zealand had direct dial international calls while the Aussies were still banging on the tom-toms there you go okay we can't say too many things nice about New Zealand I reckon we have a better rugby team how's that does that balance it up at all yeah we'll talk about that later mate (laughs) not that I know anything about rugby but it sounds good yeah mate So, uh, yeah, many thanks again to uh, Monica and Elliot for joining us and also to Don. We really appreciate them uh, taking the time to come and chat with us. Yeah, it was great. Well, let's just move on with a little bit of housekeeping just before we finish up. Grant, and as usual, the Midnight Post is on his way down the street. I think here he comes. Oh, mate. He's pretty brave to get past your dogs. Now, we've had a lot of listener mail since we made our really exciting uh, announcement in the last show that we'll be heading off to Oshkosh. Thanks, of course, to Pracy Racing and to JetRide Australia, jetride.com.au slash PCDU. So, yeah, it's uh, really exciting stuff. And we just wanted to thank the multitude of people that have contacted us, um, some by email, many on our Facebook page and many more by Twitter, offering their uh, kind thoughts and congratulations. We really appreciate it. Yeah, and also to all the people who are saying, great, we'll see you at Oshkosh. Really looking forward to it. As uh, many people have said, and we're starting to learn, Oshkosh 
Josh is not just about the aircraft. It's also perhaps more about the people. So uh, while we'll be having our minds blown apart by all the aircraft there, I believe there's more aircraft at Oshkosh than there are on the Australian uh, register, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's also going to be great to catch up with all the people. So to those who have said, come on over, looking forward to catching up. Well, yep, ditto. We're definitely looking forward to seeing you. Yeah, it's all about the people. And we plan to scare as many of them. No, that's not right, is it? No. Oh, well, you know, just ha- that'll just happen, mate. <laughs> Okay, now I just wanted to read one listener mail, and we've had quite a few, but uh, time's running a bit short, and I just wanted to mention this one that came in from another Canadian listener, Grant, a new listener, Mark Fraser, over there in uh, in Toronto, Canada. Cool, good day, Mark. Yeah, good day, mate. And he says uh, he started listening to us on the Airplane Geeks podcast and enjoys the segment so much that he uh, decided to uh, start downloading the PCDU as well. So we should congratulate Mark on his fine taste. <laughs> you crazy buggy, you. Uh-huh. Welcome aboard. Now he says here, Grant, love, love, love the F-111 episode. Well, yeah, we love that one too because it's our second most popularly downloaded show. <laughs> yeah, it also let us get out there and play with uh, some very heavy iron. Uh, yeah. Love love those F-111s. Pretty awesome, mate. I think the one's up around 18,000 now, I think. Oh, I don't know. It's huge. So anyway, he says also congrats on going to Washkosh and he looks forward to those episodes. Yep, well, we look forward to making them. <laughs> Now, he wanted to share a quick story with us, uh, which which I kind of liked, actually. Now, he says um, he wanted to talk about an aviation memory from his childhood that stayed with him all these years. He said back in the 70s, his father was working on his commercial license. Uh, he was in grade two, so he reckons it's about 1977. That's interesting. I was in grade one in 1977, so I think he must be about my vintage, Grant. <laughs> anyway, he says, one day at school, I go outside for morning recess, and my dad's there, and he says, do you want to go flying? Well, he said, not really a hard choice for me, school or flying. So dad signed me out of school for that day. Day, and we went flying in a Cessna 172 and in the afternoon in a Piper Aztec on a clear cool. winter day in perfect VFR conditions. He said, I'll never forget that day as long as I live. Cheers. Well, you see, Grant, that's that's a really cool story because we talk a lot about dream building here and getting young kids out and how that those sort of opportunities are restricted these days. In, in, and mm-hmm. I assume the security theatre is probably the same in Canada as it here, is here in Australia. But it's, you know, and I can remember having similar sorts of memories with my dad, you know, taking me down, to, and I've talked about this before, going down to Moorabbin Airport and, and getting out there and, and perhaps not going flying with dad, but, uh, you know, at least getting out and, you know, getting up close to aircraft and having a look in them. And it's all about dream building. It's something that Grant and I try and do with our kids. And, uh, you know, those sort of memories, well, you're right, they do live with you forever. And, you know, if aviation gets into your blood, well, it often happens from a, very, from a very early age. So, Mark, we agree with you, mate. Uh, great story. Thanks for sending it in. Definitely. Okay, so we just want to go on to shout-outs quickly, Grant. And I just wanted to, uh, well, actually, I want to give two shout-outs. So the first one I want to give is to you, mate. Oh, really? Aww. Oh, go on, studio audience. I'm blushing. Yeah, and that's because Grant's edited most of this episode. (laughs) Who knew it was possible? (laughs) I should have put this one in while I was at it, Grant. (laughs) Well, mate, uh, all I can say is uh, don't get used to it. After doing two not-too-hard interviews to uh, edit, I'm moving back on to other things, and it's all yours, mate. I will hand over the con on the uh, editing desk back to you, mate. Yeah, that's what you think, buddy. I've shut it down, and I've I've shipped all the mixer and everything off to your plane. Oh, no! I thought I was just getting my hand in, so I'm ready for Oshkosh. No, but editing's no. a blast, mate. Editing's great. It's great when you, you know, can spend 20 hours of your week in here editing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I do I do enjoy the power. I could change some of those words. You haven't listened to all these yet, have you? Oh, well, yeah, well, you know. No, 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 that's good. That's good. Just get them out, mate. Just get the whole episode out in a hurry. That's cool. Don't worry about it. It's okay. Anyway, so I really appreciate it, mate, uh, because, you know, the way we sort of work here is that I'm the cut and paste guy, and uh, Grant is the, uh, the tech department, the IT support department, and uh, the going out and getting interviews guy. <laughs> I thought I was the, yeah, we're not sure what, but uh, yeah, he just hangs in the corner, mate. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, it was really cool. So I appreciate that, mate. Now, <laughs> Thanks, um, mate. 
one other shout out I wanted to give is to a, a, a relatively new listener to the show and someone that I haven't seen for many years, uh, but um, somebody that I used to be in the uh, Country Fire Authority with back in the mid 1990s, and that's Glenn Philp. Philpy. So, uh, yeah, actually, I hadn't seen or heard from Glenn for quite some time, but uh, he's made contact through the podcast. So, uh, yeah, Glenn just wanted to shout out to you, mate. He's now a leading firefighter there at the uh, Country Fire Authority and um, obviously has uh, chosen it to be a career. And is obviously, if he's a leading, he's uh, <laughs> obviously doing quite well at it. So, uh, so, there you go. Even though I'm no longer part of the CFA, it's uh, it's one of those things that sort of uh, sticks with you, you know, for quite some time. So, uh, glad to know that uh, Glenn found us. And uh, although I don't know if uh, he's into aviation or not, maybe we can change that for him. Well, mate, that wouldn't be too hard because it seems a lot of fireys are into aviation. It must be all the uh, buttons and things like that. But, uh, mate, what did you get up to? He, he's a leading fireman. Were you a following fireman? Oh, yeah, I was just a grunt. <laughs> <laughs> you followed orders, huh? In the, you know, there's, there's different ranks um, for volunteers and for career firefighters. So, uh, you know, Glenn started off there at uh, in the same brigade that I was in as a volunteer, and he's obviously gone on and taken it up as a career. So, you know, that's pretty awesome. And I'll tell you what, it's a very, very competitive field to get into if you're trying to get into that. So, uh, yeah, you've really got to be good. So, you know. Philpy was always better at it than I was, so there you go. Well done, Philpy. Actually, most firefighters were better at it than I was now. Think about it. Well, anyhow, back to podcasting. <laughs> we can we can pretend we know what we're doing here. Yeah, I think I found my niche here. <laughs> Editing. That's right. Editing. Yeah. So anyway, Philpy, glad to hear from you, mate, and uh, yeah, glad that you're enjoying the show, mate. And uh, you know, I hope you continue to uh, come along for the ride with us. Always good to have more people along listening in. Absolutely. Well, I think that just about wraps it up for this episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening, and as always, we certainly hope you enjoyed it. Great to hear reckon we can squeeze one more episode out before we head overseas? Well, I certainly hope so. There's a bit more content that uh, is pretty topical and timely, like especially if we can uh, <clears throat> align our schedules with Dan. Well, yeah, we'll try and get that one out, but uh, just wanted to throw out here too, folks, if uh, you're heading over to Oshkosh or if you're a business that's uh, involved over there from the in Australia or New Zealand or anywhere in the Pacific area and you'd like to chat with us while we're over there, well, we'd like to chat with you. So uh, certainly make sure you drop us a line here, playing crazy down under at gmail.com. Let us know how we can contact you while you're over there at AirVenture. We'll be there for every day of it. And more, in fact, we'll be there before it officially opens. Well, on that thought, Grant, I suppose we'd uh, you know, better start getting the suitcases open and start packing. So uh, we'll sign it off there. Just remember when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, or just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website www.playingcrazydownunder.com or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. Production and editing by Grant McCarran. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. 
As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Think of a snappy intro, Grant. Uh, are you going to be able to come up with one? Or? Oh God! Is, no, you just you, is you, this going to drag me out of bed to do this? You know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, it's, I was on night shift. Be out of Flemington, shouldn't you? <laughs> yeah. No, God, no. This is the last place I want to be today. Well, Grant, you know what this means, don't you? What? You know, that means we can actually use this in the end credits this week. Brian Simpson, production and editing by Grant McCarran. This has been Aww. a southern. Wow, we can use that one this week. I feel so special after all those hours of slaving away on the keyboard and the mouse. Absolutely. Well, of course, that means you have to now edit the rest of the show. No! <laughs> We've been uh, dealing with the guys at Lifestyle Pod Net- Lifestyle Pod Network. Uh, so to Don, we really appreciate them uh, taking the time to come and uh, let... Uh, we really... Uh, to doing too... Not too hard. E- e- there. Yeah, there you go. Although I'm not part of the uh, CF... <coughs> Pardon me. So, yeah, there you go, even though I am not, uh, <coughs> he says, getting all choked up. So, there you go, even though I'm no longer part of the CFA, it's, uh, yeah, it's one of those, um, yeah, go along for the ride with this, you know, code three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, code three. <laughs> you don't even know what that means. No, but I could imagine. <laughs> it's what's down under that counts, folks. Well, just remember this. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you want to try that again? Just the it's just remember this.